Henry Nouwen once said, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. My name is Steve West, and I serve as senior pastor of Jacksonville First United Methodist Church up in the Northeast Alabama Mountains in the North Alabama Conference. And you have joined me for the Read Together podcast this week. And when it comes to the theme of forgiveness, personally, I've grown to believe forgiveness is not usually very easy, and it sometimes happens in layers over a long period of time. I've also grown to believe that reconciliation It's not always possible, especially if both parties aren't willing to come to the table. But at the same time, I believe all things are possible with God. Now, that relates to the readings this week, which I would suggest entail the most classic archetypal story about the complexity of the human family and about forgiveness and reconciliation. And for me to say it's the most classic archetypal story, I realize that's a big claim. But the readings this week are from the Jacob-Joseph sagas in Genesis, from uh, chapters 28 through 45. Uh, And so I welcome you to this podcast for today. Whenever I, nowadays anyway, whenever I read through the stories of Jacob and Joseph, especially large portions of them together, my thoughts always go to family systems theory. For those of you who may not have heard of family systems theory, it's an incredibly helpful way of understanding how the emotional dynamics of the human family works. Uh, you know, in my case, it especially connects with how the dynamics of congregations work work. I found it to be uh, really important and helpful for me. For one thing, I've learned about the importance in pastoral work, but also in other forms of leadership, of being clear with yourself about your boundaries, the importance of staying connected with others, and the importance of maintaining a non-anxious presence. Most probably, you've heard some of these phrases. Again, I want to suggest that this grand saga of the story of Jacob and Joseph and their families is the archetypal story about human relations. It's about family systems anxiety that perpetuates itself from one generation to the next and the also human journey of pain and forgiveness and the possibilities of overcoming these obstacles through reconciliation and what that takes. So what I'd like to do as we talk through the readings of the week whether you've already read or you're planning to read after you listen, I want to invite you to plunge into this story for yourself and to read it with a big picture in mind, with different eyes than we usually, you know, we usually read scripture in snippets and little stories, and we just focus on the message of the story or the meditation that our hearts are based on that story. Now, some of these stories are extremely familiar, but we're used to reading it in small doses, and I want to invite you to see the whole saga as one body of teaching, of archetypal wisdom, with a few key themes. And so that's what I'd like to do today. One of the major themes is family anxiety about who's the favored child. Okay, and you're going to see this family anxiety sort of threaded throughout 
these stories. So first we'll look at uh, chapter 28, and I'll do a brief overview. Uh, This is about Jacob, and this is just after Jacob had grabbed Esau's birthright and his blessing from their father Isaac. You know, Jacob, the name means a grabber because he was born with his hand grabbing Esau's foot, and boy, was that not foreshadowing. And Rebekah had just sent him, right before the passage we plunge into, Rebekah had just sent him away to hid from Esau from his anger. And that's where we start this reading. And Isaac, by the way, gives him a last bit of advice uh, right at the beginning of this chapter. Isaac gives him his last bit of advice before restating his blessing on him. Go and marry one of the daughters of Laban. Now, I want you to read this carefully if you've never noticed before. They're Jacob's first cousins. Isaac gives them their, their advice. They're Jacob's first cousins. Go and marry one of them. So, on the way, again, we get to one of those classic stories that we treat as if it's standalone, but I want you to see how it fits into this grand saga. There's this dream at Bethel with the climbing of the ladder, Jacob's ladder. Now, despite the old song, we are not the ones climbing Jacob's ladder. You got to notice that when you read. These are God's messengers, God's angels going up and down the ladder, and God restates the blessing of descendants that will come like the dust of the earth. Of course, this scene for me is immortalized in the words of the beautiful song, Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And as you read, ask yourself, when has God shown up in my life? When I was in transition from one reality or another? Remember, these things happen for Jacob when he's en route from one existence to the next, as we'll find out several of these classic stories do. When have you been able to say, ah, surely the presence has been in this place? Well, as we move to chapter 29, that's when uh, Jacob's love life kicks in, and it is quite a soap opera. Laban tricks him into marrying Leah first, which is not the one he really loves, and then he has to work seven more years for Rachel. And then the kids start happening, which of course become the 12 tribes of Israel. So you can start counting them when you're reading first Reuben until down to the fourth Judah that comes uh, through Leah. Now, note as we pause here that Jesus' ancestry comes from the tribe of Judah. Notice that. Start paying attention to Judah. That's Jesus' earthly Ancestors. Sometimes it surprises people to realize that Joseph is not in the direct lineage of Jesus. That that's the tribe of Judah. Anyway, you move on to chapter thirty-nine, and the love life gets even stranger. To make a long soap opera short, Rachel's jealous and arranges for a couple of children through the womb of her servant. Leah gets jealous and gets her servant pregnant too. And this, I mean, this is becoming a story that would make a soap opera actor blush. Leah then has more kids after all, and then Rachel finally has one. The girl Jacob really loved finally has a kid, and that's Joseph. So the family anxiety about who's the favorite son that started with Jacob grabbing his brother's ankle, well, that gets passed down. The family anxiety of Jacob, the one who grabbed the birthright and a blessing, is passed down to the next generation of family And as you read, ask yourself, what, if any, are the family anxieties that are passed down in my family or in my church family or in my community? How have you encountered that and dealt with that? That's real. That's life.
Anyway, there's more to this soap opera. Laban tries to trick him out of the speckled and spotted goats and sheep that he agreed to give him after the years of work. By He tried to give them away real quick, so he's being sly. And Jacob responds cleverly by nurturing a new flock of them. So all this is to say Jacob works for 14 years for the hands of both Leah and Rachel and then six more for the flock for a total of 20. In chapter 31, Jacob finally leaves and they make a treaty together after accusing each other of so much, him and Laban, his uncle. Then chapter 32, now Jacob must face Esau. Now this is one of those examples of when a classic story happens, but we don't always read it in the context of this great, you know, how do we find redemption out of this great family anxiety about who the favorite child is? So all of his history with Esau comes back after the 20 years of amassing his, quote, blessing, unquote, from Laban. He has to face his brother Esau again. Terrified, he remembers the last time Esau saw him. He wanted to kill them. So he sends waves of gifts ahead of him to soften him up, soften the situation. And then in this journey, that's when this classic scene happens where he wrestled with a man we presume to be an angel of God or God's self until the break of day. And when he wrestles with him to the break of day, he knocks his leg out of joint. Jacob still insists on a blessing. He insists on a blessing. Does that sound familiar? And the blessing is he named him Israel, a name which means one who struggles with God and others and somehow makes it through. As you read, consider when you've had to confront God and to wrestle. Are you wrestling God now? Or are you heading toward wrestling God now? Wrestling with God is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's relationship with God. And it's part of the journey of faith. Well, then we move forward into chapter 33. Now that Jacob has faced God, which is quite a journey when we have to face others we don't want to face, Esau forgives him. In fact, Jacob has to persuade him to take the gifts that he sent. Now, in chapters 34 through 36, there's a lot more here. Again, there's some soap opera in here. There's twisted revenge of the family against those who defiled Dinah. I won't cover these details here, but it's a sordid group of details. Then he goes back to Bethel, which is what he named the place where he set up the rock for his pillow and He experienced the dream, the vision of Jacob's ladder. He goes back to Bethel, which means the house of God. God sent Jacob back there to establish a place of worship. And there's also a section here outlining Esau's descendants. We won't go into the details there. But then after these chapter, here's a huge shift. We go into a whole new chapter in history from Jacob and his saga to Joseph and his saga. Now, once again, I want to invite you to see that there's a family anxiety about who's the favorite child that's passed down from one generation to next. Now, Jacob, or Israel, in chapter 37, is now an old man. And Joseph's dreams start. You remember the, the Joseph's dreams. As horrible as his brothers were to Joseph, you know, throwing him in a cistern, leading him for half dead, selling him to slavery, lying to their father, throwing blood on the Technicolor dream coat. As horrible as they were, This is all about the family anxiety of who's the favorite child, and Joseph ribbed them about his dreams. 
and them bowing down to him. Now, I had three brothers, and I would not have appreciated Joseph's attitude. Who's the favorite child? I'll show you who's the favorite child. We can't excuse the behavior here, but you get it. It tells you something about human condition. Now, notice Judah again. Once again, he's the ancestor of Jesus's earthly genealogy through his earthly father, Joseph. Judah is gracious, sort of. I always get a kick out of this. Oh, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. After all, he is family. I want to say, really? Well, he is the most gracious one that comes to the table. And that'll happen again. We'll see that again. We're familiar with the story of him being sold to slavery. And we go into chapter 38, which we read about another complex soap opera that I don't have time to unpack with you. And I would have to be careful about what I said. It's about Tamar. Now, Tamar, again, she is in Jesus' ancestry too. Not Joseph, but Tamar. Look at the beginning of the book of Matthew as is Judah through their son Perez. Some of Christ's earthly ancestors are a sordid bunch of people, as human as can be. And that's part of this massive story of the uh, nature of human struggles and the need for forgiveness and reconciliation, all of which points to Christ, the divine become thoroughly human. So anyway, there's that story about Tamar, and boy, read it for the soap opera details. Chapters 39 through 40 are about Joseph's rise to prominence. Again, very familiar stories. First at Potiphar's house and then framed by his master's wife who's jealous of Joseph's attentions. Then he winds up in prison where he interprets some dreams in prison. And then chapters 41 and 42 are about that prisoner who remembers his dreams and he is brought out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and the coming famine. And then his brothers arrive in Egypt. What a saga. His brothers arrive in Egypt because of the famine. And this is a massive setup for one of the most amazing reconciliation stories of all time. Now, chapters 42 and 43, you remember, of course, Joseph received his brothers, but he doesn't offer flippant forgiveness. And he doesn't make it easy on them. Some of that's probably strategic. He wanted to make sure they came to table for the reconciliation that they needed. Some of it was probably dealing with his own emotional turmoil. It's interesting how Joseph knew reconciliation was going to be a journey together. His cleverness comes out being aware of his favorite child syndrome, uh, acutely aware of this favorite child syndrome that plagued the family, generations of his family, he purposely forces them to go back and get Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is the younger brother, the only other brother actually born of Rachel, who is Jacob's real love, and this is clearly Jacob's new favorite child. All of this is going on while you have the scene of his brothers, Joseph's brothers, discussing grief over in the corner about what had happened, what they had done to Joseph and and how this is God's revenge on them. And they didn't realize that he could understand them because he's been using an interpreter to appear Egyptian to them. So then anyway, you move to chapter 43. You have them return with Benjamin just about over Jacob's dead body because he's about grieved to death by this time at the idea of losing Benjamin as well. 
Then chapter 44, Joseph slyly tests his brothers and he frames the new favorite child. I imagine he's convinced it's to bring them to true reconciliation. And he knew they had to come to the pain of this situation together. He wasn't trying to get them back. He was trying to get them to the table. He wasn't trying to get them back. He was trying to get them to the table. Now, notice Judah again. You have some themes that keep coming back. Once again, the direct ancestor of Jesus steps up. He cannot stand the idea of making his father Jacob grieve one more time. And for the first time, he offers himself instead. It's almost like a substitutionary atonement, if you think about it. That's the moment when reconciliation became possible. That's the moment when Joseph's emotions broke. That's the moment. Maybe, just maybe, for us as Christians, this is a mysterious foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus, Judas' descendant. You know, this is not a story about cheap forgiveness. That's what most of us would like to learn or like to have from other people, cheap forgiveness. But to really reconcile You have to come to the table together, and you can't always find reconciliation in life because to really reconcile, both parties have to come to the table. But you can find forgiveness and letting go through the reconciliation of Christ. This is a real turning point, this chapter 44. Well, in chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals his identity. Of course, his brothers are stunned. He cries on their necks. I also want to note I meditate often about how incredibly spiritually mature and emotionally intelligent Joseph had to be. To be able to say, and not in a flippant way, but in a powerfully deep way, to his brothers, you didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh. He saw their family pain and their struggle in light of a bigger picture. Those were healing words to say and healing words for them to hear. He was not ignoring what had happened or glossing over the pain. He was wanting them to join him in finding some purpose in the pain. So finally, they sent for their father Jacob and the family all came in peace and they were all blessed as were generations after them. Now, I began this whole section of thinking by saying, that this was such an archetypal story about human nature. Think about it. The family anxiety was passed down from one generation into next. It was part of the DNA. And there's a journey and for forgiveness and reconciliation. And for us as Christians, anyway, it all points to the reconciliation and the forgiveness of Christ. It's God's honest, hopeful, and real story In the very DNA of our faith heritage, it's about real life and real hurt and real forgiveness and real reconciliation, and ultimately, it's about real hope. I recently saw a quote from Richard Rohr inviting us to find a universal forgiveness for the realities of the world. That really resonated to me. A universal forgiveness for the realities of the world, as hard as that is when the world gets crazy, especially if I feel hurt. I hope I'm making some progress by the grace of God 
to find a universal forgiveness for the realities of the world. I can't fix the world. The story points out not only what it means to be human, the reconciliation points to Christ, the great reconciler. In a world anxious about the favored son or who's the best and who's the greatest and who's number one, the Messiah is the one who comes from the tribe of Judah, one of the reconcilers in this story, and that Messiah is Christ. And at his baptism, the sky opened up and there was a voice from heaven, this is my son, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. In other words, This is my favorite child. This is my favorite one. Let go of trying to be the favorite one. Christianity, then, is not just an evacuation plan to get out of the world and go to heaven one day. It's living a life where Christ is the focus, not taking care of number one. We join Christ in close relationship with the Father. You know, that's what Christ prays for us in John 17, Our identity is in Christ who makes it possible for us to be in close relationship with the Father. That's who we are. That's what reconciles us to God. And that's what reconciles us to others. Jesus Christ is the great reconciler of all. In Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches the first sermon to the church when he talks about the universal restoration of all things. I don't know exactly how that's going to work, but I've grown to believe in that. For Paul, Christ reconciled the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and I still think he reconciles the dividing walls we build between groups, people diametrically opposed to each other. In Christ, we don't escape the world. We don't escape the pain. We're given a way through the way, truth, and life, the way of Christ, which brings reconciliation and hope to the world. Christ doesn't take away the realities of the world. Christ engages us with them as transformed people and causes us to engage as people of God. That's what this story is about here. It's a primordial explanation of the reality of human rivalry and conflict and the very definition of what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like, and it's a foreshadowing of the reconciling ministry of Christ, even the reconciling work of the cross. Wow. So as we read this week, I invite you to let this story, this saga, and all its complexity and drama and completeness help you with Richard Rohr, find a universal forgiveness for the realities of the world and go about a ministry of reconciliation, making the world a better place, lighting a candle in the dark places and being a part of making it better. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.